Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. Today we're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start right around verse 22. We're going to consider the rest of uh, what is considered Peter's gospel message on the day of Pentecost, as well as the response to that message. I apologize last week for us not being able to uh, have our study we had some technical issues on our end that kind of crept up at the last minute unnoticed, and hopefully we won't have it today. And so we're going to go ahead and, without problems, have our study. Paul, if you would, take a moment and let everybody know how they can participate in today's discussion. Be happy to do that, John. As we think about that, uh, you might be watching us on YouTube. I, I personally think YouTube is about the best way to be able to watch uh, the Truth Factor discussion, and it's at youtube.com slash Truth Factor Live. Uh, but you may be watching us through the Facebook feed, which is youtube.com slash trade. Uh, it's not YouTube. It's, tr- it's uh, facebook.com slash Truth Factor Live. And uh, do we change our Twitter handle there, John? Yes, Truth Factor Live is our Twitter handle now. So it's uh, twitter.com slash Truth Factor Live. And you can always watch us on our website at truthfactor.com. And click on the live viewing page, and that way we can uh, we can see what's going on. All righty, I appreciate that, Paul, and I appreciate you joining us here today. And boy, my office has gotten noisy here. <laughs> John, Paul, go uh, ahead and tell them uh, where we are studying today while I check on this thing. John, uh, we're in uh, Acts, uh, the book of Acts. Are we in chapter three? Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, I I wasn't able to be here for the last couple of studies. And so I was just going to mention that uh, on the Truth Factor, uh, the YouTube.com slash Truth Factor Live, and uh, on the other pages, you can comment and ask questions. And we try to introduce those in a timely way. Uh, Who is leading the study today? I am. Oh, well, I was going to hand it off to somebody else, John, but instead... I'll just kick it right back to you. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> All righty. So let's go ahead and pick right up in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where we're starting at today. Uh, Peter has already introduced the prophecy of Joel in explaining to everybody exactly what was taking place on this particular day. Um, and that's kind of the thing that he says, the things that you now see and hear is what Joel spoke of. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And so having made that point, he is about to shift over into a couple of prophecies by David. And he's showing them that all the events were foretold, were prophesied by the prophets of old who were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pick up there in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 39 is kind of a lengthy uh, segment here, but we're going to go ahead and take a look at it. And what I'd like to do is have Shelton, if you would, to go ahead and read that section for us. Let me get it prepped. Let's see. All righty, whenever you are ready, Shelton. Absolutely. And that's through 39, correct? Correct. Okay. From the New King James Version, beginning in verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, 
you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men, brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. All right, Shelton, I appreciate you reading that. I need to make one local adjustment here, I think. Let's see. I'm not sure where it is. Okay, so a couple of things here I want to kind of bring to everybody's attention and Shelton a couple questions here. When you look at this particular section, um, this is a really good example um, of how to put together, if you would, a sermon. There is a logical flow in everything that Peter's stating, and he's building up to a very important point. Ultimately, the point he's about to make is this man whom you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Savior. That's the point he's building up to. And so in order to do that, he's got to show from prophecies how Jesus wasn't simply a man who died and was put into a tomb, but he was actually the one that God sent to fulfill the prophecies. Um, when you look at Acts chapter 3, you're going to see something very similar in the um, sermon there that Peter will look at or Peter will present. Now, before I throw Sheldon his question, let's go ahead. And I think, Brian, you've already done this, the chat room question. To what does the following phrase, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, what does that refer to? And we'll come back to that here in a couple of moments. But he says, to what or to what does the following phrase refer, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption? All right, Shelton, for a hundred dot, no, I'm kidding. So... <laughs> Think about this. Peter said, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. 
What was Peter referring to when he, when he made that statement about Christ? Well, and, and it, I think it goes back to what you said about his whole entire purpose of uh, his sermon here, what he's building up to, uh, trying to get these people to understand that this Jesus whom they crucified, God has made both Lord and Savior. He, he was Christ, deity in the flesh, which was being denied by those people. Um, it was the fact that they thought he was a blasphemer. He, he was just a man and he claimed to be the Christ, uh, but, he, but he wasn't. And, uh, and so what Peter is trying to do here, I believe, in, in the phrase determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, uh, is attesting him as the Christ. He is from God. God sent him here to do these things. And uh, you need to understand that this was determined beforehand. God had already determined this man, Jesus, to come here and do the things that he did. He had already determined him. He sent him down from heaven to be here as the Christ. So I think that's what he's trying to do is, is further the point that this man is from God. And what he said and what he did was backed by the power of God. And I think you're right about that. I think, and I think this is a very important point that that Peter's making. You know, when when a little bit later when we step into chapter three, we're going to see, and even in somewhat in chapter four, um, we're going to see the idea of Peter telling them that yes, while you did this, this was the will of God, and it was part of God's plan. Even the fact that Jesus was to to die upon the cross of Calvary. Um, it'd be very important for people today who kind of hold to the to the idea that uh, Jesus failed and God had to do a plan B because the people rejected Jesus. And that's, that's just not according to Scripture. Right. Any other thoughts or comments from you gentlemen? You know, uh, without going into detail, just the book of Ephesians deals extensively with that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 11 talk about the eternal purpose of God, verse 11 specifically, or verse 4 talks that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 11, uh, we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, I mean, it was in his plans all along, and and that's just clearly established. Yeah, I think it's a very, very good point. Um, Anyone else? Okay. All right, let's go ahead. A couple more thoughts here to consider before we continue. And y'all help me keep an uh, a, an eye on the chat room. Let's see. Okay, yeah, Stephen was addressing the chat room question, so we'll get to that here to, in a couple of minutes there. Tom, so when you give thought and consideration to what we see within this chapter, um and what we just what we just were talking about, how that all this came about by the foreknowledge and determination of God, did it release them of their sin of crucifying him? No. Next question. Okay. No, just just. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, actually, the point is, is no. I mean, there's a few passages. I mean, you've even got the idea of Jesus praying to the Father to forgive them for they know not what they do. But when you but when you look at what happens, you see in this chapter, and even more so when you get into like chapter three and so on, we're going to see in more detail where he talks about how you did these things ignorantly and it becomes clear 
it becomes clearly evident that there's still accountability. In chapter 1, we talked about Judas, who by transgression fell. Uh, uh, you know, Judas, quote-unquote, repented. I guess I shouldn't even say I mean, he did. He, he repented when he went back to him, but he was still guilty of the things that he did. So they were not excused because they were personally accountable. It's just in their personal actions, they carried out God's plan. And that's that's the whole point. But Jesus died, and every one of them could be forgiven, and that's really the way to give consideration to this. Um, <laughs> hang on just a minute, Tom. The, um, the problem I mentioned a while ago with my headphones... Um, I thought I had silenced all the computer interruptions, and as soon as they came in, I didn't hear anything Tom said the last couple minutes, or last couple seconds, I should say. Yeah. I suggest you disagree with every word. Okay. All right. So, Tom, I appreciate those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those thoughts yeah, there. Yeah, I appreciate those thoughts, whatever they were. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, now, I, heard, I heard most of what you said. It was just the, the, closing, the closing comments there that you made that um, – I did. I wasn't able to understand fully, but that's okay though. Um, let's go ahead and head on though. Um, so Brian, let's talk to you for just a moment here in regards to this. David uses a couple of Peter's prophecy, not Peter's, sorry, turn around. Peter, Peter used, used a couple of David's prophecies in regards to the events that were taking place this day, place this day. Um, how does he use the prophecy that's seen in verses 25 through 28. You know, I was kind of thinking about how to how to answer a question like this uh, without actually kind of stepping into the chat question either. It occurred to me that really one of the neat things that the New Testament was revealing to the Jewish people that may not have been clear before was that oftentimes Scripture had a dual meaning. Um, that it may not have been until the time of Christ that it became apparent that a scripture could say one thing and have two different applications. Uh, that, for example, David could was talking here in the psalm about his deliverance by God and uh, his confidence that God was going to deliver him. And Peter is saying that this is also a reference to Jesus, that this is speaking about the fact that Jesus wasn't going to be left um, in the grave. And so what's interesting is that we have to assume that, that both, have that meaning that uh, that that idea is true that David felt this way and that this is speaking about Jesus and we'll find all throughout the New Testament many passages are going to be revealed to us uh, and it's clear that that for those uh, of the first century that that was a novel idea you kind of get that sense with the Ethiopian eunuch even that as he's uh, reading Isaiah 53 and doesn't know how to apply it that what seems simple to us that we're really talking about Jesus wasn't a concept that had had crossed his mind before. So it's kind of neat to think about this idea that for the first time they're being told, hey, the scriptures that you looked at from the past are actually also speaking about things uh, that are here and now. So in that sense, perhaps uh, that's one thing that we might see how Peter is using David's prophecy. Okay. All right. I appreciate that, Brian. Um, any other thoughts or comments on that? Oh, yeah, John, you know, when you think about dual implication and prophecies, it's real interesting. There are some there are some prophecies 
that you can clearly relate it to the individual and know that it has the spiritual implication. But also, there's just some statements that are made that don't make sense totally until you get to their fulfillment in the New Testament. And, and I think some of chapter 16 is that way. You know, this statement he's making about, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One uh, uh, to see corruption. And, and Peter's going to deal with that. You know, uh, you know uh, David's dead. You know where his tomb is, and those types of things. So you have, and the point is, is in these prophecies, what makes them a prophecy in many of these instances is the fact that there's things in there that don't make total sense until they're ultimately fulfilled spiritually, or or fulfilled in Christ and in the church, and those types of things. I. I think Acts or Psalm 16 is an example of it. I think Psalm 22 is an example of it. Uh, Isaiah 53 is an example of it. Uh, there was things that related, but the overall complete fulfillment of it, there's enough there that you know that it had to be looking forward. Okay. And then other things can be said about other types of prophecies uh, that were not like that. Okay. All right. Um. Brian, let me ask you a quick question here before we move on. Part of what you were saying fell prey to the problem I had with Tom a while ago, but I've got the problem solved now. Um, go ahead and say hello, Brian. Uh, hello. There you go. Hello, That's Brian. what I don't like about Hangouts. <laughs> um, all right, now we got Brian front and center. What, remind, or what we... Do you see that David could have had a personal application in what he wrote? I was thinking about what Tom was saying, and, and I agree with what Tom is saying. A lot of the prophecies, we don't fully, it's hard to apply meaning to it till we finally see the fulfillment. But do you think David could have been writing this, although by inspiration, with a very personal application? Well, certainly, uh, Psalm, uh, Tom mentioned this is Psalm 16, and Psalm 16 is a very personal application in general to David. Now, the question you're asking is, could David have seen the idea that God wouldn't leave him to uh, to be lost in the grave? And the answer, I think, is absolutely yes. I, th I think yeah. that uh, a lot of Old Testament writers had a hope of resurrection, um, Job or Daniel or others, that, that that concept wasn't lost on them, although it's not a part of the law of Moses. And that's that's actually a very critical point to understand about the law of Christ and the law of Moses. The law of Moses didn't have a... Uh, a promise uh, of the resurrection as the law of Christ does. Yeah. So David, I think, probably was expressing that to some degree he had a hope that God, that after death, God wasn't going to leave him there, similar to what Job says or others. But at the same time, uh, I think Tom is right because some of that language is very peculiar. I think Tom hit it on, uh, hit it uh, correctly when he said, you know, the, you won't let your holy one. And of course, the language there is is not, is not first person, it's third person. And that's a very unusual language. And that's indeed, I kind of think Peter was making that point earlier when he's, when, or later when he's talking about the idea of the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that the grammar of that statement precludes the idea that David is, is, is only talking about himself. So yeah, I think David, David probably, I think a lot of times these guys had a mind for themselves when they're speaking of the prophecies. I think when, when David is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he's describing himself, describing, you know, how, how his enemies are, are upon him. And yet, he's just, 
don't perfectly fit him too. So I think I think that's the consideration. Now I will say there there are instances in the Old Testament where you have prophetic statements made, and you just don't know what they were thinking. For example, when Isaiah was talking about the sign that was going to come of a of a child born to the virgin, was was that something Isaiah was talking about in his in his time too? I, I don't think so, but it, you know it's it's a little confusing uh, sometimes to to wonder what he would have thought that meant. All right. I appreciate that, Brian. That's a good, good explanation of that. And I hadn't thought about that with the Isaiah in reference to the Virgin. People would have been scratching their heads about that one. <laughs> uh, Mike, real quick before we move on, and we'll check the chat room here for any questions or comments after this. Um, what is the main point Peter is ending his sermon on in verses 32 through 36 there? Well, again, it's uh, a good bit to do with what David had said about himself, as you just discussed. But uh, Jesus is the one that God raised from the dead. John's uh, uh, Peter is saying that uh, David's tomb is still over here. You can find that. It was not David that ascended into heavens, verse 34. Uh, but he says of himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. One of the thoughts that came to mind when Brian was talking there a minute ago uh, actually comes from back at verse 28. If this is said of David himself, it certainly is prophetic of Christ as well. For David says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make known, uh, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Well, the only way that that could be filled for David himself is to realize he is a man after God's own heart. But when reflecting in the end of the sermon here, Peter says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he saith of himself, that is, David said of himself, the Lord said unto my Lord. Well, who's David's Lord? See, that's what he's saying. There's someone greater than David. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So at verse 36, the proof of this prophecy, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God, Jehovah, Yahweh, as the Hebrews would have known him, hath made that same Jesus, that promised one, that anointed one, that, that prophesied one, hath made him both Lord and Christ. The word Lord here is master. The word Christ is anointed one. And that only applies to Jesus Christ, not David. So as high a esteem as the Jews may have given to King David, David himself humbles himself by saying there's one greater, and that's the one that will bring me great joy at the end of all that's known of earth life if I remain as God would have me to be. That's Jesus. Okay. The, the Jews could not look forward to, to David's salvation to them. They had to look forward to Christ. There's where all the joy is. Yeah. Right, that's a very good point. Um, and it, and it's, a, it's a masterfully done buildup that Peter does. It, it, it results in their being a convicted um, mm -hmm. by the truth of their sin. But he'll also, he's going to kind of... Um, the emphasis upon the name, the authority of Christ, he's going to continue that when he talks in chapter 3 and even in chapter mm -hmm. 4 when he's facing the council there. Well, and let me add to it just a bit, John. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of this sermon, remember that Peter said, you crucified and slew this Jesus. You killed yeah. him. They wouldn't have killed David. They esteemed him so highly that they wouldn't have touched him 
wouldn't have influenced anything toward him to kill him. His sons did, but yeah. the general Jewish populace would not. And yet this same Jewish populace, by the same, I mean the descendants of those forefathers, still under the law of Moses, still in love with David, they're the very ones that 53 days before have cried, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. The one they hated so much, now Peter proves is the one that will give them the greatest of joy if they'll obey him. You know, it's funny you say that because that's kind of the point that Peter will make in chapter 3 in the next sermon where he tells him in verse 25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, he kind of kind of makes a similar point that they are they are the descendants. They are the ones that the pro, they are descendants of the ones that the prophecy came to, the promise came to. But yet, look at what they have done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right, any other? We'll talk about uh, thirty-seven through thirty-nine here in in just a moment. Um, but any thoughts or comments over what we've covered so far? All right, let's go ahead and consider for just a moment there when he says there in verses 37 through 38. This is the response. So he said, you know, this man whom you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Savior. Now, the the intended result was there when they were pricked in their heart. All right, there was the, this conviction that happened as a result of them realizing and accepting responsibility for what they had done. And, and I've often wondered about this, that here you have roughly 50 days since a mob mentality brought about the death of this innocent man. And people ran, you know, got a mob mentality, and now 50 days, they've had time to rethink it. They've had time to maybe, maybe not talk about it. Maybe it was a hush-hush subject they didn't discuss. And now Peter and the rest of the apostles are putting it right in front of their face where they have to deal with the very things that they had done, maybe things that they were trying to ignore and they didn't want to address. But now the mob mentality is gone. And so now they're able to consider this with a very clear and open understanding. And so when it says they were pricked to their heart, it's much more than simply saying, you know, it, there was, they were mildly bothered and realized what they'd done was wrong. It seemed to be a very emotional uh, conviction cut the prick to the heart in this case. And so they wanted to know what they needed to do to be saved. And of course, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. The idea of repentance is very simple. It's the turning away. The baptism is that is obeying what Christ has taught. And future studies of baptism reveal many things about it. But it was necessary in order for them to be forgiven of their sins. It had to be done, of course, by the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, anyone want to talk about this before we continue? It seems to be a very first principle point, be it one that often is um, misunderstood. John, uh, before getting into that, or, or dealing with the conclusion of this sermon and so on, I think it's worthy to mention that he appeals to the resurrection. Yeah. That's the and point. Just, just keep that in mind. I, I, every time you see it in the book of Acts, I, yeah, I, it's worthy of mentioning because it's so powerful. Yeah. And, and it resulted in them being cut to the heart and asking what they needed to do, and Peter gave the plan of salvation. That's right. That's right. Um, well, and, and, and realize, too, I, that's a great point, Tom, because among the people in this audience— 
there would have been witnesses to this resurrection aside from the apostles. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, he was a scene of above 500 brethren at once. And we know that on this day of Pentecost, there was 120 assembled together with the apostles. Who were these 500 witnesses? I, I'm absolutely convinced they were they were there. They could testify. Yeah, we've seen him. We haven't seen King David. We've seen Jesus. We know something miraculous is here. And therefore, what Peter's saying about the resurrection has too many proofs to be refuted. That's where their joy would have to be. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. All right. Any other thoughts? All right, let's go ahead and consider um, verse 39 real quick. So he makes a statement there in verse 38. To He says, Repent, let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. The ultimate thing that is being promised here is salvation. Um, as we kind of talked about when we discussed the prophecy of Joel, talking about the pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord upon all flesh. What has separated now the people from God is sin. Jesus has brought in a new covenant. Within this new covenant, they're now able to be brought into a fellowship with God, to be truly God's own spiritual people, God's own nation, and no longer physical as was Israel, but pardon me, but now spiritual. And this promise that comes, uh, anyone have a comment on when he talks about uh, for the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off? Yeah, uh, John, how about it's kind of an important point. There are some who would teach sometimes that the commandment that Peter gives here is exclusively for the Jews. Um, many denominations today uh, that deny the importance of baptism uh, try to make it sound as though that this instruction was only for the Jews of Peter's time. And the statement you're pointing to actually makes it clear that that's not the case. That the expression here used that to those who are far off is an expression that's used to describe Gentiles. Paul's going to use the same expression in the book of Ephesians, um, chapter 2, verse 13. I think he uses it twice, actually. Yeah, he does in chapter 2, 13 and chapter 2, 17. Um, so it's understood it, or, uh, here that what he's suggesting is that this promise is not just to the Jew, but to the Jew and to the Gentile. Now, I think what's interesting about that is that later on in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the Gentiles, he's going to seem a bit surprised that this promise was as true as it was at that moment revealed to be. But it is important for us to understand that that little detail makes it clear to us that the instruction Peter is giving is not just to the Jew, but to the Jew and to the Gentile, to all mankind. Yeah. I think it's a very good point. Well, and and that promise is found for, uh, stated very plainly, First John two twenty five. This is the promise he has promised us, even eternal life. So, as you said a minute ago, John, the whole thing here is salvation, yeah. and it was given both to Jew and to Gentile. That's right. All right, let's see if we have any comments in the chat room, real quick. Before we move on to our next section, we do want to bring back up to the forefront the chat question or the question for the chat room. So let me um, share that with you here real quick. Uh, 
The question we ask, what does the following phrase refer, or to what does the following phrase refer? Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And here's what Stephen James says. It's a very good point. It seems that God would not allow Christ's body to suffer the degradation of death and decay, nor allow his spirit to experience Hades. Um, let's, 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 kind of, let's look at two different parts of that for just a moment, and, we're ho- and I'm open to any comments further from, from the guys here as well. Um, Tom and Paul, probably about five or six years ago, uh, Marty, Marty Pickup, I think it was, uh, presented a lesson on the burial of Christ and the importance of three days in the tomb versus four days. And it was an interesting thing that I did not realize until hearing this, that the Jewish people believed that the, the decay did not begin until the fourth day, that they could go in and out of the tomb for the first three days. But after that third day, it would have to be capped off and not opened again because of the decay process. And so hence Jesus, he arises from the grave on the third day before the decay actually begins. And in the case of Lazarus, he was in the tomb four days, and they thought surely he would already stink by now. Um, but anyway, I, I thought that was interesting um, regarding regarding the fact that his body itself would not see decay. Um, any thoughts or comments uh, about that before we kind of look at the latter part of what Stephen said? No? It certainly gave enough time mm-hmm. to be assured that he was dead. Uh, yes. But, yeah. but yeah, it's not enough time for the uh, – I'm trying to be delicate. Uh, decay was the right word that you used uh, to begin. <clears throat> so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and let's see, we had a comment from Jared Dart. Let me go ahead and bring that in real quick. Um, I don't have that to share with y'all, but he says we should not allow ourselves to be tempted because if we do, and this was the first sermon, um, he talks about us falling back into the trap of Satan. And it's a lesson that he had presented there at his home congregation. And we need to keep, uh, that consideration in mind too. If we find our, if we allow ourselves to give in to sin, then we separate ourselves from the Heavenly Father. We find ourselves in the same similar state as those on the day of Pentecost. And repentance, in that case, is what we need to do to come back, of course, to the Lord. Um, what about the last part of what Stephen said? Nor allow his spirit, his spirit to experience Hades. Does anybody have a good comment about that, or a comment about it? We we know his spirit went to paradise. Because that's what he told the um, the thief on the cross. So if Hades refers to simply the realm of the dead, then that would include paradise, I would think. But yeah. if um, Hades is referring to something different, then I could I could kind of see what Stephen's talking about there. Well, it, it comes from uh, Hades is translated three different ways uh, in okay. the King James version. Anyway, it it means the grave. It means torments, and it means eternal damnation. And you have to look at the context. Obviously, we know that the Spirit of Christ went to paradise. Uh, Abraham's bosom is another phrase for that. That's where the thief was. That's where Lazarus was, etc. Um, it, 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 it's a difficult thing, but 
the body did not see decay, nor did the spirit of Christ remain eternally removed from the body. God brought the two back together and raised him from the dead. That's the important thing. Uh, he, he allowed Christ to walk and talk and be touched and to eat uh, and such so that the Jews that saw him realized that there is indeed a life after death that's incredible. They'd seen it perchance with Lazarus uh, in being raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow of Nain. Uh, later, the apostles will raise some from the dead, but each of those died again. Now you have to see Jesus. Those folks that had died again, go look at their tombs. You're going to find a body. Here's Jesus. He was risen again. 500 witnesses, above 500 witnesses. Go look at his tomb. It's empty. Where is his spirit now? Return to the right hand of God. So that what we look at in in that comparison, and we'll see that in the rest of this sermon, is that we uh, emulate his death by putting sin to death, buried in baptism, rise to walk in newness of life. We're here in the flesh until we die in the flesh, but that spirit can be taken to God for eternity. And there, there's the comparisons of this. Perhaps the key word there is, was not left. That's uh, correct. Depending on correct. how you want to view the word Hades there, regardless of that, it there. was not left. The, the New American Standard says he was neither abandoned uh, to Hades. And so uh, it's a similar thought there. So mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Tom, do you have a thought? Yeah. Yeah, just real quickly. The fact that it says you will not leave my soul in Hades, it indicates that his soul was separated from his body. That's a clear point yeah. to understand when he died. He he physically died, and he went through whatever the transition is that is associated with the soul separating from the flesh. And then it returned. Okay. That, that, right. that becomes important when you're engaging in arguments with those that uh, want to question the resurrection, whether he was really dead and so on. That's a good point. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go ahead, because of time, and move on to our next section and be the final one. Brian, if you would, I'm going to have you to read, since Brendan's not with us. Um, actually, I'll tell you what, since you're handling the chat question uh, throw over, um, let's get Tom to read for us uh, verses 40 through 47 of chapter 2. Okay. Let me get the that, and whenever you're ready, Tom. Okay, well, we read here. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All right. 
Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you reading that for us. The chat room question is as follows. What should a local church glean or learn, take away, from verses 44 through 47? So what should a local church glean from verses 44 through 47? Now, in this last section, verses 40 through 47 there, we see a couple of different things and and I really do see that the that this portion that we're about that we have just read through does two things one it tells us uh, the immediate response to the message of Peter and the apostles but it also kind of gives us an overview summary of the local church there in Jerusalem um that that is having if you would its origins this day um he talks about those who are added um and as many as uh, gladly received his word were baptized, and that day three thousand souls were added unto them. In verse forty-seven, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so we have there this local congregation being established, as well as, of course, it's the body of Christ in in existence that is beginning the growth process. Um, and so when you stop and think about everything that you see here within this particular context. We see that when the word of God is preached and when individuals hear it and they respond to it, it's not simply something they do that is one time and, and has no future impact on their life. Um, not only are they being added to the body of Christ, they work with the local congregation and there's, there, there's, they, they continue in fellowship and in the apostles doctrine and in prayer and in breaking of bread. They continue in learning the will of the Lord and worshiping the Lord. But there's also this, for lack of a better word, a family relationship that begins to exist because God is their heavenly father. They are brethren, one of another. And we see this care and compassion extended towards one another as we go through this section. Um, but I've got a couple of key questions I want to ask, and then we'll take any open comments here regarding the time that we have remaining. Um, Paul, let me bring you uh, into this for just a second. Um, yes, sir. There are, there's, there's two references to the term breaking of bread. The, the first one is used in verse 42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then in verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food, gladness, and simplicity of heart. Could there be a difference in how that phrase is used in both places? Hmm. It's my understanding that we do find a difference in uh, some of the ways in which that is used. <clears throat> and you can only tell if it's referring to some spiritual activity or some more ordinary activity by the context. And when you read there in verse 42, you see that the breaking of bread is in a list of things that are like apostles' doctrines, that spiritual fellowship the breaking of bread, and he says, in prayers. And so uh, it's my understanding that he very likely uh, at least could be talking about the Lord's Supper here and talking about the different things that the church did as a collection together. And it seems that verse 46 is talking more about individual activity, where it's talking more about their everyday social activities, where he says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This was their everyday activities uh, that were engaging in. In other words, they 
shared meals with one another in one another's homes, and that was uh, part of their social lifestyle, I suppose. And you can only tell the difference in that, and sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's more difficult uh, by the context of that particular phrasing. Yeah. I know there, there were sometimes, you know, when Jesus, when he was feeding the multitude, you'd see the terminology break bread. But then when you see it, like you said, in context of uh, verse 42, and then you think about Acts 20, verse 7, when the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread, the thing that Jesus instituted, not the thing, but, you know, the the, the memorial that Jesus instituted would tend to fit that terminology. Like you said, the context is everything. When you look down a little bit later in verse 46, it seems to appear that they got together. And and a lot of times we'll look at verse 46 as the driving point for us today. And granted, we should be close to our brethren. I'm not saying we should not be. We should be. But back then, during this time period, if we understand the, the, what was happening, you had a lot of people who had came to Jerusalem whose home was not in Jerusalem for the Pentecost. They obeyed the gospel, and they stayed around until the to the stoning of Stephen, essentially. And so there would have been a lot of need for brethren to have ate together in, in, in their homes, you know. And we're going to see very shortly that as these things transpired, that there were so many people who had swelled the crowds in Jerusalem yeah. that there were people in need, that they did not have enough food uh, and there was not enough there to supply uh, their needs to the point that people like Barnabas and others uh, I suppose you'd include Ananias and Sapphira in that, that they were willing to sell property uh, to feed feed the saints. Barnabas is a great example, and uh, Ananias and Sapphira not so much. But Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Tom, do you have a thought real quick? Yeah, also, you know, dealing with this breaking of bread as far as the Lord's Supper, uh, mm-hmm. in Matthew 26 and verse 26, where we find it instituted, it says there, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and yeah. gave it to the disciples, uh, saying, this is my body. And Paul repeated that in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, pointing out that he broke the bread. That's how we can associate that phrase with the Lord's Supper. And when you put it in the context, as Paul mentioned in Acts 2 and verse uh, verse 42, it becomes pretty clear that it, it was that was something that was associated with worship, verses verse 46. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, anyone else have any other thoughts on this before um, I throw the next question to Mr. Shelton? All right, let's put Shelton in the hot seat. <laughs> so I was thinking about something, Shelton, when, when you're reading through this, especially 43 through 47. Does, does it appear to you that maybe Luke shifts his um, his writing method to to be more of an overview not so much as what happened on one day, but do you think maybe he's describing what happened in a general thing to uh, there over the next couple of weeks kind of summarized, if that makes sense? Uh, yes, I do. I think he shifts. Uh, there, there's certainly a shift in, in tone and intense there starting, uh, starting there. I don't have the verse in front of me, sadly. Uh, let's see if we get to it real quick. There in verse um, 40, 43 there, yeah. Yeah, 43 especially. Um, I believe there is a shift. 
we see statements made in verse uh, 46 where where the statement is made they continued daily uh, and also in in verse 47 that uh, at the end Christ added to the church daily uh, so these were this was a time period that elapsed I am not sure exactly how long I'm sure there could be a a better study done on that. However, I know that it's at least up until the point that we see in in forty to forty two area, up until Peter and John are arrested in chapter three. So um, I, I believe that that is the period of time that he's summarizing here. Because I think when we go into chapter three, and and not to give any spoilers there, but when we find out what happens, I believe that's the next event that the Holy Spirit and and uh, I guess basically found wise to to put in the Bible for us. Like lack of wording there, you could word that better. But um, I believe that's the time frame he's he's doing. I also think it might be the case where in forty two that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I don't know if today I would say somebody continued fastly or steadfastly in Christ's doctrine if they only did it for a day. Um, so I think that, that these things are happening over a period of time. Um, they're, they're meeting, they're breaking bread, like we said, and in prayers. Many signs are being done. They're selling their possessions and their goods. That doesn't sound like something that could happen in, in a day or two. Uh, yeah. That the needs of the brethren are going to change over this period of time. And I think what he's saying here is they're, they're continuing to do these things for this period of time. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, going all the way up until the stoning of Stephen, there's a lot of miracles that are going to be done. A lot of different signs are going to be granted by the by the Lord. Even and like I say, we'll be careful about spoilers, but even when you look in chapter four in their prayer to God, they say, Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they speak they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You know, still looking for God to continue that process through the Holy Spirit of enabling these signs and wonders, and so it, it does fit kind of a generalization or a summary of, of yeah, what think, was and did I think happen. For sure he's summarizing the activities of the early church as a congregation in worship, and yeah. also the early church as how they interact with each other outside of worship and socially. And I think it's a good thing that you know, not to step on the chat room question. But I think that is one good thing we can learn as a congregation from this, uh, from this is how we interact with each other outside of worship services. I think in a lot of places it's, it's an issue that, uh, that a lot of the brethren are only brethren when they're in the building. And uh, we see in the early church that's absolutely not how the brethren interacted with each other. They were, they were certainly a part of each other's lives outside of the building. Yeah. Good point. Are any other thoughts or comments on um, the last part here of this of Acts chapter two before we look at the chat room question? All right, let me go ahead and jump over here real quick and bring that up. So one more time, the question that we asked a while ago was, "What should a local church glean from verses forty-four through forty-seven?" And we had one response to that, and we appreciate your response, Stephen. He says, this appears to encapsulate the duties, behavior, and responsibilities of all disciples of Christ. And that's a very good point. Um, while it's, it is short in regards to the number of verses, 
that are that are seen here within the text, there's still a lot that is seen in regards to the proper attitude and behavior towards one another. And uh, Shelton, you know, he already I made some good comments in regards to that. And um, a local congregation can learn a lot. We see unity, the concept of continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Um, the concept of brotherly love is clearly seen. Uh, selflessness. Um, you think about Philippians chapter 2, that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Just a number of passages here that come to mind. All right. Any other thoughts or comments from the from the guys here? John, if I may, let me make just another comment on verse 47. And Shelton may have already done that. I'd step away for a bit. The result of brethren being unified as they were, having all these things common, uh, making sure that each was taken care of as they, as they needed to be. Notice at the very last verse, the very last sentence, the influence it had on the populace of Jerusalem. The Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. Those weren't members of the church. Those were people outside seeing what the church is doing and being convinced by their actions that the gospel means what it says. Uh, folks have asked me for years, you know, how do we make churches of Christ grow? There's my answer. Uh, I, I just go back to Acts 2 and show them what the early brethren did, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The influence of the gospel comes through the way we live it every day. Okay. Very true. Very true. All right. Any other thoughts or comments? We do. I was reminded we do have a comment in the. Now this this is on our uh, live truthfactor.com page where you can also view the the video there, um, the study there. Um, we're not able to bring those comments in as far as like we do the other ones. But Jared Dart reminds us that of course, as we mentioned earlier, that the apostles were continuing with the brethren in breaking of bread and praising God and um, helping others to know Christ. And this also would have helped them to avoid the trap of falling into sin. It kind of reminds us of that as well. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of Acts chapter 2, and it's taken us two weeks. Didn't quite intend to do that, but that's okay. And if we need to to do that in future chapters, we will. But let's see. Sheldon, I think you're down for chapter 3 next week. Uh, that, that would be Tom. I think I'm down for 8. Yes. Oh, sorry about that. Mr. Tom, you have Acts chapter 3. I do? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, let's see. Any final thoughts or comments? Let's start with you, Mr. Mike. I I greatly appreciate this study. The, the churches of Christ today need to review Acts 2 quite frequently. They were not encumbered by the ideals of man that we find so prevalent in some places today. They were not encumbered by attitudes. They simply accepted the truth of the gospel, upheld it, defended it, and by their actions proved how vital it is. And obviously, verse 47, it worked to convince others in that same place of the gospel of Christ and its power because the Lord did add to the church daily such as should be saved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. Bryan, any final thoughts? I don't have anything. I appreciate the study today. You know, you look real sharp today in that black shirt. 
The lighting is just I, just right. I got a I got a new camera actually. Uh, so in the last uh, few days, I bought a new camera. So it, that, uh, it has one of those make me look good settings. That's right. I'm 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 hopeful that uh, you know having a true HD will bring out my my true beauty. And it shows greater detail, so that's plus or minus. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, do you have any final thoughts? No, I disagree with Mike. Acts chapter two is so important. Yeah. Uh, just need to understand it, and it's, uh, we've covered a few things here today, and it's just worth uh, dealing with. Thanks everybody for your comments and so on, and look forward to next week. Same here, Shelton. Any final thoughts? No, I, I do think it like. Like they said, just to add to it, it's a very important chapter in, in talking about the church and the brethren, uh, how it got its start all the way to how they act afterwards. And, and we need to take a big look at that and, and learn a lot from it. So true. So true. And Paul, you're last, but not least. <laughs> uh, I just appreciate the guys on this panel and the study that we can have each week. All right. I appreciate that. All right, everybody, that's it for today. Lord willing, we'll continue our study again in Acts chapter 3 next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And then we also have some members, I was told, that might tune in from the Philippines. And so if you are tuning in there, we will be... Uh, on at 1 a.m. for you guys. That's early. And right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.